the hell? People want to feel something, man. That's why you come to a show like this. What happened to my sound? It's just not the uh, high quality of the ideas. It's not just, you know, the intellectual discourse. It's not just, you know, storming the heights of intellectual achievement. People want to feel something. People want to, you know, become alive. Feel like they're really feel like they're coming from the inside and so if people can't get that at church or at synagogue if they're not thriving in their profession or their education right people will keep searching and so they might go to live streams they might go to stamp clubs they might join a, a dance class right they may take up writing or extreme sports people need to feel alive people need to feel something and sometimes the regular avenues for feeling something just aren't working and so that's what leads to large part extreme politics why do people join antifa or america first like why do people get into talk radio or their favorite tv pundit because these people make them feel something and so uh, live streams and punditry and talk radio and your favorite you know tv host are good if they are a supplement to your life they are a negative force if they are a substitute for real-world human connection. You know, our primary source of meaning and excitement should come from our children and from our family. But I'm not married. I don't have kids, so I have to look elsewhere, and so I do live streams. If live streams are a substitute for real-world interaction, then that's obviously negative. If talk radio or punditry or politics is a supplement to your real-world connections, then... That's very possibly a good thing. All right, here's Mother Jones back in March on Autumn Nick Fuentes. It came from the basement. Whoa. Written by Ali Breland. Okay, so very derogatory headline, right? Hey, people feel alive. And it came from the basement. So we have all sorts of emotions and needs that come from the, the basement. That doesn't make them less real and less valuable. All right? You may have primordial needs for love and to be loved, for connection, to hold and to be held, all right? To, to you know, build something with, with somebody, to, you know, storm the, the spiritual heights of the heavens with somebody else. You may, you know, be looking for someone to grow spiritually or grow Jewishly with. You want to connect with someone Jewishly or Goishly, all right? We all want to feel alive, even if the emotions come from the basement, right? That, that doesn't make them bad. Eight months before the white nationalist figure Whoa. Nicholas J. Fuentes ignited a political firestorm by dining with Kanye West and Donald Trump at Mar. Okay, so this is an article. Right, this is an article that seeks to dismiss, dismiss, and diminish. It's uh, it's not primarily about uh, understanding. So I'm going to take this article as a st ah to try to journey towards understanding rather than just, you know, the easy dismissal. So this article aims at the easy dismissal. Mar-a-Lago, he strode out on stage to a crowd of what he claimed were 1,000 followers chanting, America first. Behind a podium flanked by two Americans. So why do we exaggerate the, the number of followers or the our accomplishments, all right? Because we want to feel something. We don't want to be losers. Laponia says, I want... Elliot Blatt informed me to hold me, but from a long distance. We will spiritually be there for you, bro. We're not, a, we're not afraid 
of human connection here on this show. ...flags and one with that slogan. He hit his standard beats, the nation is in decline, Christ is king, while sprinkling in some extremely troubling riffs like comparing Vladimir Putin to Hitler and suggesting the similarity was a good thing. This Marriott... Okay, so everybody needs to be understood in their genre, right? Dennis Prager is the genre of, you know, Bible-based morality applied to the events of the day. Uh, Ben Shapiro is of the genre. He'll say the most conservative talking points possible, even if he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Uh, Nick Fuentes has kind of a gamer mentality, all right? He's here to help you feel something, help the Zoomer feel something. And so as a host or as a media entity, you can choose. Do you, do you want the widest possible audience, even if it's a bunch of losers? So um, Dennis Prager and uh, Ben Shapiro and you know other nationally syndicated pundits, they talk you know, to an average audience with at most an average IQ of 105. So you want to raise the average IQ level of your audience to like 120, such as this show, you're going to dramatically cut down on your possible audience. So would you rather speak to a very wide audience of idiots who have very shallow understanding of reality, or do you want to speak to an elite audience of you know, thoughtful people? And so Nick Fuentes speaks to Zoomers and gamers, and uh, I don't think there are a lot of doctors, college professors, dentists, lawyers, attorneys, uh, therapists, accountants listening to Nick Fuentes, but for, for people who smoke a lot of dope and play a lot of video games, it makes them feel alive. He's meeting a real need that apparently churches and other more conventional organizations have failed to meet. Conference center worth of groipers, which Fuentes' fans call themselves in homage to a right-wing internet frog meme, had gathered in Orlando for the third annual America First Political Action Conference. He was serving as the warm-up act for a secret guest of honor, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Representative Georgia. She didn't say anything too noteworthy, but her willingness to appear at an event hosted by an openly racist Holocaust denier was a massive victory for his cause. In becoming a member of Congress... Green had helped bring institutional credibility to fringe and racist conspiracy theories. Now she was doing the same for his brand of white nationalism. It was a big deal for her to come out and... Okay, where's my sound? My, my sound is back. All right, so this article is very much on the, you know, cheap put-down. So Nick Fuentes is many things, but uh, Holocaust denier... It's not really one of his major riffs. He virtually never talks about it. He, he once, you know, made some joke about uh, six million cookies. All right, and to extrapolate from that, and I'm sure he's, you know, here and there he said, you know, some crazy things. But he's working in a particular genre of shock and awe. All right, so people are working in a shock and, and awe genre. All right, they're going to say outlandish things. But uh, I don't think either white nationalist or Holocaust denier. Uh, the the proper descriptors of Nick Fuentes. He's a, a shock and awe, you know, vlogger, talk show host, uh, personality who helps people feel you know something, feel intense, feel alive, feel like they have a mission. I remember 
when I was listening to Dennis Prager and I was really sick, it, it moved me that Dennis said to me, you know, you're needed in the fight for good values. You need to get well soon. Right? Who doesn't want to participate in the fight for good values, right? Everybody wants to ride a white horse. And let's say that in the real world, you're just constantly meeting failure. You're going to look and look and look for areas where you can shine. And so that might be in, in painting or in extreme sports or in extreme politics, right? We all have a need to shine, to feel important. Do that, Fuentes said, praising Green after her keynote. You guys know full well the risk. She put herself out on a limb tonight, and we here at AFPAC are grateful. At AFPAC, I famously said it would be a small group of highly motivated people who would change the world, he added. Here in Orlando, I say we are that group of people. We are going to rule this country. The event's evolution suggests he's made progress toward that goal. The first one... The, the idea that uh, America First and Nick Fuentes are going to rule the country is, of course, absurd. But uh, believing absurd things gives you, you know, meaning and purpose and passion. Now, you can believe absurd things and still be highly effective in the world. But, you know, frequently people who get into extreme politics or extreme causes, all right, uh, believing things completely disconnected from reality, generally speaking, makes you less effective and in the long run, you know, less happy and less likely to pass on your genes. In February 2020, had no politicians. Instead, featuring far-right commentator Michelle Malkin and Patrick Casey, a longtime member and leader of the neo-Nazi group Identity Europa. By 2022, six Republican elected officials spoke, including Green and Representative Paul Gosar, Representative Arizona. Okay, so it sounds like American politics are becoming more polarized, more extreme, but the circumstances and the situation has changed. So. What was taken for granted in America in the 1950s, all right, that outlook is now known as this extremist ideology of Christian nationalism. But uh, many of the, the tenets of Christian nationalism would have been considered you know, perfectly normal and people didn't get excited about them, didn't even use the terminology Christian nationalism. But when the situation changes, when the, when the tide starts you know, rolling out so that Christians have less and less influence in the world, then they're going to have to reach for more and more extreme measures to try to stay relevant, to try to stay alive, and try to stay feeling important. They appeared alongside explicit white power activists, including Vincent James, a supremacist influencer who used his speaking... I mean, are there any, you know, supremacists, uh, you know, outside of the quote-unquote white nationalist Rome? Doesn't every group think it's supreme? I mean, come on, every group thinks it's the very center of the universe and that the world revolves around it. Uh, Japan... Right, the land of the rising sun. Japan believes that the sun rises first on Japan and then goes to the rest of the world. China means center of the earth. Right? Every group thinks that they're supreme. It's not just some you know, unique weirdness of uh, people on the far right. Slot ...to argue that crime wouldn't go down until even more black Americans were in prison. Peter Brimelow, who founded... Well, I think what he is a, a more intelligent way of arguing that is crime's not going to go down until the people who commit the most crime are in prison, right? And so there, right now there's a disproportionate number of certain types of young black men who commit astronomical rates of crime. But in other areas of, of criminology, like other groups commit astronomical rates uh, of crime. So you have to punish the people who are causing the most harm, the most disruption to society, 
And right now in America, that means a lot of a certain type of young black men. It's not uh, young black women. It's not middle-aged black men. It's not old black men. Right? It's not uh, old Asian ladies. There's a certain element of uh, young black men who are committing an astronomical amount of crime. If you take the people who are committing an astronomical amount of crime and you put them away in prison for a long time, you can then dramatically reduce crime rates. With the white supremacist website VDARE and Jared... Okay, Peter Brimlow from VDARE. VDARE is an anti-immigration website, right? Virginia Dare was not the, the first white child born in the United States. She was the first uh, British child born in the United States. So VDARE wants to keep the, the Anglo-Saxon tradition strong in America. So it has, you know, black people and uh, Asians and uh, Latinos writing for the site. It's uh, primarily an anti-immigration website. Taylor, founder of American Renaissance, a racist journal. I mean, you can call American Renaissance many things, but just racist journal is just such an easy put down, right? You can always call anyone racist, but when, when terms like that are just used, you know, over and over again, they lose all meaning. Right. This is not an article that wants to understand. And so what happens when people are deliberately put down, robbed of their humanity, de dehumanized, uh, degraded, objectified, you know, pointed out these are the bad people, these are the horrible people, these are the evil people, and that's the only kind of treatment that they get from polite society? Well, you know, whether they're Muslims or black nationalists or white nationalists or whatever group they are that is consistently, you know, put in the other and, and the dangerous and the, the awful out, you know, out group category, uh, eventually people get a revolt, right? On the other hand, right, treat people like human beings, you know, try to understand where people are coming from and give people a fair go and you're less likely to have a polarized situation. The logistics of the Orlando conference, like the previous ones, were also designed to accelerate the GOP's slide toward white nationalism. It was just a 15-minute drive from where the conservative political action conference... Again, it's just absurd to think that uh, the GOP is on some inexorable slide towards uh, white nationalism. Now, it would probably be an adaptive strategy for both parties, both of the major parties in the United States, to go where the votes are. And so there's the highest potential... Republican voters out there who aren't actually voting Republican right now among white Americans. And the Democrats get uh, overwhelmingly their untapped voters from Americans of color. So go where the votes are. Seems like a pretty sound strategy for the Republican or Democrat. Which for decades has drawn the party's biggest names and thousands of attendees was taking place the same day. AFPAC started at 9 p.m. after CPAC wrapped, so participants could attend both. In the latter half of the 20th century, the GOP was pushed right by radio provocateurs like Rush Limbaugh and Fuente. Okay, Rush Limbaugh and radio provocateurs did not push the GOP right. As we saw with the Fox Dominion lawsuit, right, Fox is scared to death of losing its audience. Rush Limbaugh was scared to death of losing his audience. He paid great attention to giving his audience what it wants. Like, Name the brave people in punditry, particularly right-wing punditry, who don't give the audience what it wants. From Dennis Prager to Mark Levin to Sean Hannity, they're all you know, highly intent, Tucker Carlson, they're all highly intent on giving the audience what it wants. They're not leading, they're following. Right? The GOP was not driven right by talk radio. Right? Talk radio 
went right to the extent that it went right because that's where the audience is. And almost every host who's successful, right, they tune in to what their audience wants and repeats the talking points that make audiences feel alive and happy and joyful and confident and supreme. This is hero, Pat Buchanan. People who never held elected office but were deeply influential to a radicalizing party and a portent of its Trumpified future. Today, this 24-year-old digital native is doing the same. My and on the right, you can see all these articles about how the, the Democrats have radicalized and you know, gone further left and become uh, communists. So it's uh, very easy to just put down the other side in you know, these dismissive terms but uh, not particularly adaptive or sophisticated. My job, Fuentes explained in a May 2021 live stream, is to keep pushing things further. Uh, Nick Fuentes pushes things further to the extent that that brings him money, power, uh, fame, and, you know, the sense that he's important, right? Why do people do things after they meet their basic needs for food and shelter, right? People want to feel something. People want to feel alive. People want to feel significant. People want to feel important. People want to feel like they're, living from the inside. People don't want to feel like they're on the margins and they'll just keep casting about until they find something that makes them feel important, that they are fighting to take back civilization, that they're fighting for good values, that they're fighting to take back America, that they're fighting for their tribe or they're fighting for their race or they're fighting for their religion or they're fighting for their ideology, right? If you don't have family that you care about, right, you have a, in all likelihood a desperate need for meaning in your life. And when you have a desperate need for meaning, you are going to be wide open to all sorts of scams, right? You're going to be wide open to all sorts of gurus. And there are all these uh, belief systems out there that are just highly seductive, all right? There are bubbles of belief that while seductively easy to enter, can then be almost impossible to think your way out of again. But if you have strong ties to your family and your friends and your community or to your profession, to your education and to your interests, Right, you're going to be much less vulnerable to the allure of gurus and causes, right? You should just find your meaning in your friends and, and family. But if you're not capable of finding, if you're not finding your meaning in your friends and family, then you're going to look elsewhere and you're probably going to make a really bad decision because the, the drive for meaning really sends people squirrely off into all sorts of, you know, generally uh, maladaptive directions. And I know, I, I'm speaking from experience. When I got really sick in my 20s, you know, I felt fairly isolated in the world, like all my dreams had, had fallen apart. And so to keep myself going, I needed meaning. I, I needed to believe that I was desperately needed in the fight for good values. Then over the past, I don't know, seven years, as I started to build more substantial community in real life, started to make more money in real life, started to you know, build my friendships in real life, you know, build a, a life that I could be more and more proud of and feel good about, have more and more self-respect than my intense need for meaning consistently diminished so that I could stand up here and go against what everybody in the chat would be saying. So initially when I started live streaming 2016, 2017 into 2018, it was incredibly alluring to develop an audience that'd be in the dozens to the hundreds to even over, over a thousand. And I would consciously feel that tremendous tug to give the audience what it wanted, meaning reward the more extreme elements of the audience. Because even moderately inclined people 
often get a charge out of more extreme positions. So someone moderately on the right will often enjoy, get a charge, get a thrill, feel alive when they hear presentations of ideas considerably to their right. And so I'd feel that tug to be, be captured by the audience. And then luckily I read uh, a book on virtually you, the, the dangerous powers of the e-personality, and it really kind of spelled out you know, the, the dangers of going online where you feel uh, much less constrained than you do in face-to-face -face interactions. So you tend to exaggerate your own importance. You tend to go into dark areas that you wouldn't normally talk about face-to-face. -face. You tend to say things without much uh, preparation. You tend to remove the filter that you normally employ in day-to-day -day life. And then you develop you know, shock and awe habits which tend to rebound badly to you, not just online, but they then shift how you react to people in the real world and you start using some of the shocking language which you begin to enjoy online and it you know, deteriorates your real world relationships. We, because nobody else will, need to push the envelope. We're going to get called racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, bigoted, whatever. When the party is where we are two years later, we're not going to get the credit for the ideas that become popular. But that's okay. We are the right-wing flank of the Republican Party. I saw how Fuentes makes his pitch on a chilly, damp day in November 2021 when he hosted a rally in front of Gracie Mansion, the official residence of New York City's mayor. A throng of about 100 intently watched as Fuentes waved a crucifix and railed against local COVID restrictions. One of Fuentes is... And looking at uh, comments on this channel, Pigger says you're needed to fight for good values to build the third temple. So the third temple is the, the drive to rebuild the, the temple of, of Torah law where there are sacrifices to God. And uh, the last temple was destroyed by the Romans in year 70 of the Common Era. So if you belong to a community, all right, it's going to have a hero system. Right. We almost always get our hero system from our community. Most of us are not such amazing artists and, and scientists that we can get you know, our hero system from our own accomplishments. Rather, we feel heroic because we conform to the value system of our community. So I joined Orthodox Judaism, and much of my feeling of heroism is when I fulfill the commandments, the, the mitzvot of, of the Torah, of Orthodox Judaism, follow in the pathways of my adopted people, uh, help out in my modest ways and uh, learn Torah and you know, follow in the the hero system of the community. And by doing so, I then feel you know connected to something eternal. And so this is a large part of, of where you know, people get sustenance in life, right? Not just from family, not just from friends, but also from your community's hero system. So if you're a part of a community that most values education, then you think anyone who's highly educated is heroic. You're part of a community that most uh, values making money, then you're going to regard making money as the most heroic thing you can do, or athletics, or stand-up comedy, whatever your community presents to you as heroic will probably profoundly shape you. His talents is pivoting from any topic to his central beliefs. It's not even just about the pandemic, he exhorted. Take a look at this city for the past year. Ever since George Floyd died, just like every city in America, the crime is out of control. Anger over public health measures provided a way to launder more extreme and racist positions and to tap into his audience's fears of being left behind. 
Okay, I don't think uh, Nick Fuentes or people like him needed the pandemic to launder their more extreme opinions, right? They developed a particular perspective on life and they were part of a populist revolt against rule by experts. And it's not crazy to want to revolt against rule by experts. And so I'm not completely on the side of the populace. I'm not completely on the side of the experts, but I, I don't think this revolt against rule by experts is just ipso facto stupid crazy racist wrong bad right in certain circumstances it's adaptive it helps you better navigate reality helps you to feel alive helps you be part of something helps you develop an in-group gives you meaning and purpose in life right but if it's ill-judged then it can become maladaptive and make you less effective and less happy in the world so it all depends upon how you execute your your, your drives, whether they're populist or elitist. The crowd, mostly white, male, and under 30, cheered. A handful waved flags and others in the... Okay, so being white, male, un under 30 uh, d isn't a bad thing, right? You're not, you know, any less valuable to, to God, to yourself, you know, to your fellow Americans, uh, to, you know, any, you know, right-thinking, kind, decent... Uh, thoughtful, sophisticated people, you know, whether you're, you're, you're white or you're black or you're brown, or you're under 30 or you're over 60. I mean, this article is just reaching for every cheap put-down possible. The organization's riff on red MAGA hats wore blue caps reading America First. The slogan, popularized by Woodrow Wilson, was adopted by Buchanan and then by Trump and Fuentes. Well, who should Americans put first? Right, um, it's often said that Americans really care about Israel. Well, Americans don't really care about Israel. Americans primarily care about Americans. And so it's kind of weird if Americans put you know, anything else ahead of America. Uh, American Christianity is distinct. It's a whole different culture from, say, European Christianity or African Christianity or uh, Japanese Christianity. So I would expect Australians to put Australia first. I'd expect Israelis to put Israel first. I'd expect Egyptians to put Egypt first. Like putting your own people, your own nation state first, right? putting your own tribe first, right? that seems to me pretty adaptive. seems to be fairly commonsensical. It seems to be you know, a, a normal, healthy way to live. Our quality of life is being destroyed. They want us to live in smaller houses. They want us to eat less food, take up less space, have less health care. Have... Okay, so you can make this kind of populist anti-elite case uh, appealing to people with a 100 IQ, all right? And that's what Nicholas Fuentes does. Now, there's a more sophisticated version of the populist case for the, you know, the 120, 130 IQ crowd, but that's not where Dennis Prager or Ben Shapiro or Sean Hannity hang out. I mean, Tucker Carlson has done it on occasion, but uh, also you know, accompanied it with, with a lot of nonsense and idiocy. Have fewer children, and they want us to eat crickets, Fuentes said, egged on by supportive booze. I'm not eating any bugs. So anytime you have any kind of identity, whether it's Jewish, American, Mexican, white, black, brown, Latino, Italian, French, English, right? What accompanies every strong form of in-group identity is a sense of victimhood. And if you're a strongly identifying Scotsman, you have a sense of victimhood probably against England, perhaps against the, the EU. Uh, if you're a strongly identifying Irishman, 
you have a strong sense of victimhood vis-a-vis England. If you're a strongly identifying Frenchman, you have a strong sense of you know, victimhood vis-a-vis the Germans and probably the English as well. If you're strongly identifying Japanese, you have a strong sense of victimhood against, uh, I don't know, neighboring countries, against uh, the Anglos. I mean, everyone with a strong in-group identity, whether you're Christian, Jewish, uh, gay, if you're strongly identifying as Ethiopian or as Australian, right, you can come up with, you know, a story. It's it's all an intrinsic part of a strong in-group identity is being angry at uh, the victimhood of your people. Now, that sense of victimhood on a scale of, you know, one to two in intensity helps you because it gives you meaning, purpose, and an in-group to identify with. It gives you a trajectory in life. It gives you a moral compass. But if you're walking around in a relatively safe multicultural society like the United States or, or Western Europe, uh, walking around with a sense of you know in-group victimhood at a five or above is probably maladaptive. You'll be less effective at get along with people. You'll be less popular at work. Uh, people will kind of shy away from you. And then in reaction to people shying away from you, you'll intensify your in-group identity and your in-group sense of victimhood which will increasingly make you, you know, unhappy and less effective. So all sorts of things are wonderful at a 2 out of 10 in intensity and then become maladaptive with a, you know, 5 out of 10 intensity. From Father Coughlin to Donald Trump, demagogues have long commingled racist and anti-Semitic appeals with... Okay, so demagogues, again, they're telling people what they want to hear, right? Demagogues aren't changing minds. Hitler, Father Coughlin, you know, Donald Trump didn't change many minds. They released in some people things that were previously latent. But overwhelmingly, people whose outlook on life, you know, aligned with that of Hitler or of of Trump, right, they supported Hitler or Trump. And then people who are opposed to, you know, those perspectives, they didn't change their minds under the influence of, you know, brilliant propagandists like Steve Bannon or Joseph Goebbels. All right. So, demagogues, uh, pundits, you know, talk radio stars, gurus, right? They meet a need that people have to feel important, to feel a sense of community, to feel alive, right? To feel something. People want to be passionate. People don't want to feel left out and on the margins. And people who are feeling left out on the margins, they are just waiting to be activated by some slick speaker, someone who can come along and give them meaning and purpose. Years of economic decline. Fuentes's power comes from layering on a generational critique that taps into young people's apprehension that their prospect... Uh, Fuentes's power, you know, a pundit's power, comes from making people feel amazing. When Dennis Prager says, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen, he's been able to reduce audiences to tears. Now, the thought doesn't hold up to analysis but when when a skilled speaker like dennis prager is going at it he says all sorts of things that just make you know like-minded people feel amazing and so too ben shapiro or sean hannity or tucker carlson or uh, barack obama all right barack obama's speeches when you read them they were just like nothing but when you heard them if if you were inclined towards his point of view you might start crying you felt understood you you finally felt alive, you felt something, right? So the, the skillful orator you know, sets off these emotional explosions in you. How does he do that? He gets on the same page with you. He feels like he is able to connect with you. He's able to 
create a shared reality with you, right? He articulates what you're feeling. He articulates what's frustrating you. you know, he displays empathy for your struggles. Then you feel like, oh, this speaker, he really gets me. And then he shifts you and guides you and stays on the same page, creating a new shared reality with you. And out of this interaction, you feel energized. People who listen to Dennis Prager get energized, right? His regular listeners, his fans get energized. People who listen to Barack Obama get energized. People who listen to Donald Trump are on the same page. They, they get energized. They feel something. They feel alive. They feel connected. They feel like they're living from the inside. And so the, the skilled, smooth talkers, they, they release these emotional bombs inside of their audience. And it's like, oh, wow, yeah, this is... This is how I've always felt, but nobody's ever articulated it so well. Now, a lot of these emotional bombs turn out to be fatuous. They turn out to just be uh, nothing. They, they turn out to be, you know, pseudo profound BS. And that's how gurus work, right? On the more extreme angle. And you have people like Jim Jones who have followers who, you know, follow him to Guyana and commit mass suicide. You have this evangelical Christian pastor in Kenya who got you know, hundreds of people to starve themselves to meet Jesus. That's just an extreme manifestation of people's desire to feel something, to feel alive, to feel like they're living from the inside, that they have a community, they have you know, an in-group, they have excitement and meaning and purpose, and that that pastor in Kenya or Jim Jones was able to say things that just you know, set off intense emotional reactions with people. But it all begins with getting on the same page. It all begins with feeling a sense of empathy. When I listen to Dennis Prager, when I talk, you know, one-on-one -on -one with Dennis Prager, or when I'd attend a lecture with Dennis Prager, I felt, you know, very connected. I felt like we were sharing the same reality, and then we were creating a new reality together, and it was very exciting, and it would fill me with energy. It filled the crowd with energy. Now, this shared reality was largely, you know, pseudo-profound BS, but it's, you know, very exciting as long as you don't think too deeply. Acts are dimming. Decades of wage stagnation, growing income inequality, a housing crisis, and productivity gains flowing mostly to upper management. And Okay, that's not why Nick Fuentes has an audience. He has an audience because he helps people feel something, he helps people feel alive. People feel aggrieved, gives them a sense of in-group identity. He, he sets off, you know, emotional explosions in people. He creates an intensity of connection with people. He relates to people where they're at and then articulates what's bothering them, what seems to be holding them down. And so he's providing this emotional service. Yeah, it's largely, you know, pseudo profound BS, but it's not because of the economy primarily, right? It's not because of these, you know, external economic indicators. It's because people need to feel alive. People need to feel excited. People feel need to feel connected, meshed, joined, you know, part of something bigger than themselves, that they're, you know, marching with other people to, you know, create a better world or to protect their tribe or their country or their religion. And that's what uh, Nick Fuentes is so good at doing for you know, a largely 100 IQ audience. Investors have all led Gen Z to question capitalism. The ranks of democratic socialists... Okay, it's not uh, questioning capitalism that uh, you know, drives the Nick Fuentes movement, right? What, what drives it is emotion, right? He's able to say things and to make jokes and 
portray a certain you know attitude to elites and to the world around us that provides people amusement and a sense of purpose and a sense of importance and a sense that they're on the winning side right if you don't have several friends at your church or synagogue you're gonna hang out there long if you know your your political orientation you know doesn't come with with friends in a sense that you're on, on the winning team that you, you've got something cool you're, you're probably not gonna you know hang out very intensely in that type of politics all right people large part choose their politics for aesthetic reasons they want to look cool to certain people they want to connect with certain people they want to be bonded with certain people they want to be part of a certain social clique and then they choose their, their politics and often their religion around their desire for social connections have grown as a result but not every young person is drawn to the left fuentes is one of a few figures on the right who directly speak to new generations anxious about the decline of the middle class and wondering what to do about it by combining class and economic precarity with white nationalism fuentes makes racism even more persuasive to a certain kind of person this brew has helped fuel his meteoric rise from fringe YouTube star to Mar-a-Lago guest, becoming heir apparent to the American white nationalist throne. Fuentes is known for his charisma, unlike some of his right-wing internet peers. Okay, so one great uh, definition of charisma is that you pull off the impossible. And when you seem to pull off the impossible, like Nick Fuentes has apparently assembled a huge following, that then gives you more resources to more successfully, you know, pull off more, you know, seemingly impossible ventures going forward. And that is the direction of charisma until, you know, ultimately you fail. So Hitler, he took over the Sudetenland and he took over Czechoslovakia and he took over uh, Poland and Western Europe and he was taking over much of the Soviet Union. Right, he kept pulling off the impossible until it stopped working, and that's when his uh, charisma ran into a brick wall. Here's like Ben Shapiro and Tim Pool, who speak in monotones and try their hardest to present as intellectuals. Fuentes prefers to grandstand while... Okay, so the idea that uh, Tim Pool or uh, Ben Shapiro intellectuals is just pure delusion, but a lot of people really honestly believe that. A lot of people think that when they're listening to Dennis Prager and... Ben Shapiro, that they're listening to like premier intellectuals, right? But it's always people who are relatively ignorant in, in the area who think of, you know, Ben Shapiro, or Dennis Prager, or some, you know, other right wing pundit as an intellectual, right? The more learned someone is in a particular area, you know, the less likely they are to fall for some, you know, pseudo profound uh, guru like uh, uh, Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager or Nick Fuentes, Richard Spencer. Tim Pool. Working to provoke and engage. Another major component of Fuentes' appeal is that he provides logically consistent, albeit atrocious, answers to the contradictions of modern conservatism. Again, this is nonsense. All right. Nick Fuentes' appeal isn't based on providing logical, consistent answers to the problems of modern conservatism. His appeal is that he makes people laugh makes people feel something it makes people feel amused it makes people feel aggrieved he makes people feel like they're, they're gonna win he makes people feel like they're part of an in-group right he makes people feel things that's the appeal of a Nick Fuentes or a Dennis Prager or a Ben Shapiro or a Sean Hannity or a Tucker Carlson 
right? Their appeal is based on making people feel things. It's not based primarily upon ideology. His arguments have a way of ripping open muddled beliefs advanced by mainstream conservatives. Take their grievance against woke capitalism, which really means businesses responding to consumer expectations in a manner that bolsters the bottom line, a complaint that flies in the face of the free market worship that is core to mainstream figures on the right. Fuentes circumvents this contradiction by just never defending capitalism. Unlike many elected Republicans, he does not argue against diversity while claiming he isn't racist, he openly argues diversity is bad because of his belief in the inferiority of non-white races. The list goes on. No, that's not what drives Nick Fuentes. He is picked aside. You know, he's picked a tribe. He, you know, likes his in-group, and it has absolutely nothing to do whether members of out-groups are superior or inferior. Right? You can love your in-group and prefer the company of your in-group, even if you recognize that out-groups in different areas are far superior to whatever your in-group can do. Like, you love your mother and father, right, even if there are other, you know, better-looking mothers or, you know, more productive, more efficient, more effective, more affluent, more successful people than your father, right, that's not going to, you know, affect whether or not you love your parents. So, too, people love their people, whether or not their people has the highest IQ or the highest, you know, per capita earning, or you know has the highest number of uh, technology patents, right? It's all about who you love, man. Who you love, right? People love their people, love their families, you know, without regard to whether or not uh, outsiders are you know greater, more effective, superior in different ways. If there is a right-wing belief that involves obfuscating and unsavory motivation, Fuentes is open about it. He speaks to the people who don't mind saying everything out loud. Yeah, right. A lot of people are tired of uh, political correctness. A lot of people are tired of, of corporate rules. If you have a normal job, there are you know, effectively all sorts of you know, speech rules and repressions in the, the workplace. For example, you can go to work and women can feel free to you know, dress in a highly alluring, highly provocative, highly sexual manner. But if you ever dare comment on it, you're busted. You're, you're put it, you know, in uh, discipline or, or fired. So, you know, people get frustrated with the entire, you know, civil rights complex with the highly litigious society that, you know, limits the things that you can say at work or, you know, say in, in polite society. And so they welcome someone coming along, you know, who's a bit rebellious, who's controversial, right? The left, you know, used to love people who are rebellious and controversial. And, you know, many people enjoy stand-up comics because they stand outside of polite society. You know, they critique polite society, whether it's from the left or the right. And to the extent they make people laugh, they do it because they reveal truths, right? People are tired of, you know, unnecessary rules. People are tired of being, you know, rep- you know repressed and changed and smashed and held <clears throat> held down and restricted in just, you know, expressing, you know, basic commonsensical observations. And so they enjoy, whether it's stand-up comics or right-wing pundits or, you know, left-wing activists, people who come along and, you know, smash, smash, you know, oppressive pieties that so, you know, limit normal human connection. 
Nick Fuentes grew up in the relative comfort and stability of a two-parent household in the Chicago suburb of LaGrange. He has said that his father, Bill Fuentes, a vice president at a ball-bearing manufacturer, is half Mexican, which Nick sometimes uses to claim he's not a white supremacist, and sometimes brushes off as distant lineage irrelevant after decades of assimilation. His parents supported Nick as he broadcast racist live streams from their basement. In one, he said that growing up, his family avoided Applebee's and Red Lobster because they were commonly known as Black Fair, adding that they shared a saying about Olive Garden that contained the N-word. In December 2000... Yeah, well, a lot of people avoid places that are dominated by, you know, outgroups that are causing them grief or that they just plain don't like. And it's not something unique to uh, Nick Fuentes. All right, what's going on with uh, Disney and Second Ron DeSantis? Second breaking Disney news update I have for you guys is Parks Chairman Josh Tomorrow finally releasing a statement that I think we've been expecting for a while here regarding the Lake Nona project. Disney is officially abandoning the project. For those of you who don't know, the Lake Nona project was previous CEO Bob Chapek's plan to build a new Disney headquarters inside of Florida in Lake Nona, a very nice planned community that is up and coming that you have near the airport in Orlando. It's a beautiful area. We made a video here on the channel about two years ago, taking a look at where this office was going to go, the land that Disney acquired. The media is spinning this cancellation as being due to DeSantis and the hostile business environment, uh, which he helped to create with Disney. The reason I'm skeptical that DeSantis really had so much to do with this cancellation is because, you know, we know people in high places. You guys have seen some of the stories we've broken here on the channel in the past. I've been hearing for months uh, that this is just a Chapek era project that Iger wants nothing to do with. Uh, look at how fast all these Chapek era projects are just crumbling, turning to dust. You know, the reality is, is that Disney has huge bills coming due on the streaming side. They're having issues on the earnings side of things, paying to build a big new campus, a big new headquarters in Florida, making people move from California, which is very unpopular internally and part of why Chapek was so unpopular inside the company. Iger's wiping his hands clean of this whole thing. All right, this is uh, Tucker Carlson, March 13th, before he's fired. I can say, like, I don't think we should fight a war against China. I definitely don't think we should fight a war against Russia. But you can't say the world is going to be a better place when China and Russia control the majority of it. You just can't say that. No. I'm sorry, you just can't. No, you can't. And yet, they're making that a dead certainty. Well, well Trump, I saw Trump said he could close that uh, in 24 hours if he wanted to. Do you think he could? Before I arrive at the Oval Office... Shortly after I win the presidency, I will have the disastrous war between Russia and Ukraine settled. It'll take 24 hours if it's not done before then. President, and I say this, I will end that war in one day. It'll take 24 hours. Do you think he could? I have no idea. I mean, he couldn't build a border wall in four years. So, you know, um, there is a gap between promises and delivery and, and maybe because he's a little bit autistic no person can say like i don't think we should fight a war against china okay back to this uh, mother jones article on nick 2021 his mother phoned into his show to speculate on the race of a man who'd opened fire in a mall near her home what flavor do you think that shooting was lauren fuentes asked you know okay this is very normal all right, it's not uh, polite, it's not praised, but uh, when John F. Kennedy was shot, the reporter Tom Wolfe, the future novelist, went around New York and he found that every group blamed some other group that they didn't like for the Kennedy's assassination. 
So, you know, some blame blacks, some blame Puerto Ricans, some blame Jews, some blame, you know, Italians. All right. Everyone had some, you know, outgroup that they didn't like. That they, they then blamed for the Kennedy assassination. What I mean? Before hanging up in a laughing moment, she insisted Nick had learned anti-black prejudice from your dad. Nick entered high school in 2012, where he assembled a roster of activities that suggest a lust for attention and budding oratorical skills. He joined the speech team and Model UN, got elected student body president, and was selected to greet Illinois' governor during a school visit. Fuentes hosted a campus TV and radio talk show where he discussed his conservative politics. He was more moderate then, he would later admit, sometimes describing himself as a former libertarian. Bill Allen, who taught Fuentes and ran the school's television programs, told the Chicago Tribune in 2017 that none of the stuff he produced was even close to the level he's at now. So why do people like uh, commentators sometimes become more radical or, or more moderate? They're responding to incentives to a change in situation, right? If you're in a situation where it pays for you to be moderate, you'll you know, have you know, all these incentives to become more moderate and you likely will become more moderate. If to you know get an audience to you know maintain public attention, you are incentivized to become more extreme, more radical. You'll shift in that direction. So why do people do the things they do? In large part because of events, my dear boy, events, otherwise known as situations. When situations change, people change with them. The libertarian to fascist pathway is well documented, and this. So why is there a libertarian to fascist uh, pathway? And why is there like a fascist to communist pathway? Right? Because situations change. People change. They have different life experiences. The world around them is changing. And so people are trying to you know, reach for a hero system that kind of makes sense of the world around them. Uh, most people aren't deep, sophisticated, coherent political thinkers. Right? They're just reaching for something that feels good, is aesthetically pleasing, helps them to associate w with a certain crowd, and you know, helps them have, have energy, meaning, purpose, and an in-group. Seeds of what his politics would become were already present. In a blog post from just after... Yeah, because most people's political, cultural, and psychological orientations are strongly influenced by their genes. After his high school graduation, 17-year-old Fuentes harbors a pessimistic outlook that would lead him to forsake free markets. My timely birth allowed me to watch on the nightly news Okay, so why would a, a pundit harbor a pessimistic outlook? Well, how many followers are you going to get if you say, this is a beautiful world, you know, life is pretty good for all our problems, you know, life is good, I see trees of green, skies of blue, I hear children crying, and I think to myself, what a beautiful world. Right? There's not a large audience that's going to... to right? The, the easiest way to connect is to outrage people. Who's the spoils of the American experiment squandered for one final time before the dying gasp of a once exceptional people as the free world and economic abundance of Ronald Reagan was inherited by the lizard people. My generation is the generation of hopelessness. In a foreshadowing of his turn to Christian theocracy, he promised to... Okay, there's no generation in America that is dominantly hopeless, right? There, there's every reason for, for hope, no matter you know what, what uh, generation you're in. As long as there's life, there, there's hope. As long as you're connected to your family and friends, to, to community, uh, to you know some 
purpose a little higher than yourself if there's you know opportunities for you to volunteer and to contribute right there's no reason to be hopeless but when people get caught in particularly in a cycle of their own you know self-destruction then it's very tempting to try to look for some kind of you know outside reason for why you're suffering you know it's the jews or it's the blacks or it's the the capitalists or it's the socialists or it's the commies who you know are causing most of the problems uh, in reality if you're living in the first world today you know life is uh, pretty good compared to what most of people have experienced through most of history and if you're unhappy in all likelihood in this world the problem is primarily with you it's uh it's not with the political system. This is uh, Dr. Alan Alcoholism. Berger. He says, try to use willpower when you have diarrhea. <laughs> it just doesn't work. No matter what you do, if you have to go, you have to go. And he says, if you have any question of what powerlessness is like, just think about that. And I love him. He was, he was a very special man. So in this step, we are beginning to align ourselves with reality. We are learning the importance of an alignment with reality and being able to live a better life. Now, remember, one way of thinking of emotional sobriety is always aiming at the best possible attitude we can have towards ourself, towards our life, towards reality. Well, this is about having an alignment with the reality of who we are. I love the quote that Roger brought in last time, that living responsibly towards reality is what self-esteem is all about. Well, we can also say that that's what emotional sobriety is about, living responsibly, being able to respond to reality in the best possible way. That's what we're striving for. Well, tonight I wanna to talk about another thing that has to happen in order to get aligned with reality. We have to surrender what Dr. Theodore Isaac Rubin called our special status. I love that. I love that term, our special status, that somehow all the rules that apply to other people don't apply to us, we're special. Yeah. You know, I love when Herb gives his talk about you know, when you ignore a physical law, what happens, right? Gravity is gravity just all the time. It doesn't care how you, what you think about it, whether you think it's not happening or not. If you jump off a building and you flap your arms as fast as you can, you're still going to fall and probably break your leg or worse, you know, die from the fall. Well, it's also true that when we don't live in honor of the reality of who we are, we're jumping off a building all the time. We are at odds with reality and we keep trying to figure out a way to control something that we don't have any control over. And it's not until we admit that we're powerless that then that paradoxical change takes place. We're able to find a different kind of power that comes out of acceptance, not out of controlling, but out of letting go. Boy, that's something that not many of us have thought about. But now let's put that. So we have to surrender our special status if we're going to become aligned with reality. If I think that somehow the rest of you have to surrender your powerlessness, but I'm going to feel, finally figure out a way to control my drinking. Well, we see what happens when people do that, right? What we say the outcome of this illness, if it's, if it's unchecked, is we die from it, we end up in an institution, we end up in jail, we end up losing everything that's near and dear and important to us. So if we go back to self-esteem, and we're using Dr. Nathaniel Brandon's model, the six pillars of self-esteem, which we really actually, he said there's seven pillars, so we're going to start talking about his seven pillars of self-esteem, and just a reminder of what those are, and then let's look at what's happening in this step in relationship to these pillars. The first was living life consciously. Well, that means seeing life as it is, being aware of what is happening for us. Does this step help us move in that direction? Of course it does. Yeah, so step one is in recognizing that you have a problem and there's probably a more effective way to go about living your life than uh, just following your own inclinations. All right, back to this uh, Mother Jones article on Nick Fuentes. Promulgate and preach the good word of the American restoration. In that same post written the day before, 
I mean, who doesn't want their people restored? I mean, Arabs want a restoration of, you know, Arab glory. Muslims want a restoration of Muslim glory. Christians want a restoration of Christian glory. Jews want a restoration of, of you know, Judaic glory. Uh, the Japanese want a restoration of Japanese glory. It seems like a pretty healthy and nigh universal impulse. Or Trump was formally nominated as the Republicans' 2016 candidate. Fuentes described his ascent as an opportunity. Donald Trump has created an opening. We don't know for how long, and we don't know if it's big enough, but it is an opportunity for the American people to throw off the yoke of the New Age orthodoxy which has enslaved us. Fuentes eventually deleted his blog and began the live streams that would make him a far-right star from his parents' home. After enrolling... So why have many uh, bloggers turned more to vlogging? So my primary way of speaking to the world used to be writing my blog, but uh, I've devoted much more energy and time to uh, making videos because uh, it's more fun. <laughs> like Writing is, is really hard work. And it can be more lucrative, and you, you can reach a, a wider audience. So many people who used to consume large numbers of blogs, all right, they, they now prefer to take things in video format. Schooling at Boston University, he would broadcast nightly from the dorms. He grew more radical and established a campus reputation as an Islamophobic Trump supporter. He claimed persecution likening the grief students gave him for wearing a MAGA hat to being discriminated against for being black or wearing a hijab. Uh, I'm sure he was persecuted, right? Anytime you violate social norms, right, you're going to feel persecuted. When campus conservatives tapped him for an election debate against BU's student president, Fuentes seized every opportunity to antagonize the audience. After claiming that multiculturalism is a cancer and trolling the crowd as godless hippies, Fuentes admitted to a student journalist that it wouldn't be fun if it wasn't ugly. Okay, so in some circumstances, you know, monoculturalism is a more adaptive response. In other circumstances, like in safer circumstances, in more prosperous circumstances, then, you know, multiculturalism is probably a more adaptive response. So in times of threat, in times of great peril, in times of great danger, a monocultural approach will usually be more adaptive, make more sense in times of prosperity and relative safety. Then, you know, people more inclined towards multiculturalism because it'll help them propagate their genes. It will be a more adaptive, more efficient, more effective, more, more prosperous, more, more happy way of life. So monoculture works best in some circumstances, particularly circumstances of great peril. And multiculturalism works better in circumstances of, you know, prosperity and relative safety. After Trump took office, he told the Boston Globe that Trump is a rocket ship and everyone is trying to attach themselves to it. While there's little record of his actions that weekend, Fuentes attended the August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where Confederate flags and torches were hoisted by neo-fascists, neo-Nazis. So Fuentes shows up at a lot of events like the Unite the Right in, in Charlottesville and then the January 6th protests without getting without getting arrested, without uh, seeming to get into too much trouble. So for you know, right-wing extremists, he both makes dubious choices of showing up to dangerous events, but somehow manages to navigate and surf the danger to you know, avoid the same kind of destruction that has happened to so many other people. Now, 
anyone who would choose to show up to January 6th or to unite the right event in Charlottesville is highly disconnected from reality, right? They're causing irreparable harm to themselves. They're not doing good. They're, they're just you know, laying themselves wide open to get fired, to get doxxed, to get harassed, to lose you know, so many things that they hold sacred. So, you know, what, what kind of person shows up to these extreme and dangerous events, right? Someone who has become disconnected from reality, someone who's become so drunk on seeking meaning and purpose that uh, they've lost their ability to make good judgments. Someone who is largely disconnected from their families, all right? Generally speaking, people who are tightly connected with their families and prospering in their careers and not showing up to events like Unite the Right and January 6th. Nazis, white supremacists, militia members, and other far-right demonstrators, one of whom killed Heather Heyer, a counter-protester, by running her over. A few months before, for when... Okay, so I wouldn't show up to a, a Jewish rally, a, a Torah rally, that was you know, very likely to be dangerous, to be you know, surrounded and outnumbered by people who hate you, uh, an event where you know, people are you know, very likely to be physically injured and possibly killed. And I'd stay far away, like when there are Nakbar events, all right, mourning the the emergence of the modern state of Israel and taking away of land that used to be ruled by people who are now known as Palestinians, all right, I don't uh, don't tend to hang out at those events, you know, wearing a yarmulke. Fuentes had just 2,000 followers on Twitter, but back on his own campus, he said he faced death threats from other students over his presence in Charlottesville. BU security didn't respond. Right, no one can be in public life, all right, whether as a sportscaster, a, a weathercaster, a model, let alone a political pundit, and not receive death threats, right? That's just the price of fame. On to a request for comment on his claim, but contemporaneous press coverage repeating it raised his profile. By October, he had amassed 12,000 Twitter followers. The rally proved to be the terminus point for key figures on the alt-right, leaving prominent white nationalists like Richard Spencer and James Alsop either tied up in litigation or too toxic to generate mass appeal. Right, so well, whenever you, you do something, right, you engender certain reactions to you. And when you engender you know, reactions that are far more you know, hateful towards you and far more effective in negating you than than uh, creating, you know, positive repercussions, all right? You've usually made a really bad decision. So it's worth contemplating, you know, how will my words, how will my actions you know, be perceived by people who don't have a particular ideological agenda? How will it go over with the people who are most important to me? How will it go over with my with people in my community? You know, how will it, it affect, you know, those things that are most precious to me? You know, what will be the implications? Hey, it may feel good for me to say or do this outrageous thing, but what will be the consequences, right? How will it affect those people who I care about most in the world? That's it. Have a good Shabbos. Bye-bye.